The accounts shared on this podcast, including this episode, reflect the guests' thoughtful recollections and opinions of experiences perceived and occurring over many years, including childhood memories, which may be fallible and limited by perspective and trauma. Persons may have different memories regarding certain events. Welcome back to Kava the Podcast. I'm Kelly Archibald, and I want to thank you for tuning in. We live in a crazy world, so we made this podcast to shine some hope into your life. Our guests have lived through some incredible things, both good and bad, and they want to share their stories with you. Listeners like you make this podcast possible. If you've been inspired or encouraged by these stories, please consider supporting us on Patreon or contacting us about sponsorship opportunities. You can find more information about us at kavahpodcast.com. That's Q-A-V-A-H podcast.com. On the last episode of Kava, Casey Moore had believed a lie that she was not good enough. This lie had grown into a monster. All Casey had wanted to do was lose some weight and be a more attractive wife. Then she would be happy, right? Instead, this lie took her down a path that destroyed her marriage, her career, her family, and nearly her own body. Welcome back to Kava the Podcast. And um, so you're super thin? I was, I lost a bunch of weight, but at that, by that point, I hadn't really, I'd kind of gained some weight back. I mean, it, there's a point in time where it doesn't do it for you like okay. it, like you used to. In the beginning, it worked great. But moving through that, then I would, I started putting some weight back on. I, I got arrested for, I stole the bracelet at JCPenney's. But the, the sad thing about that in, is the bracelet had the serenity prayer on it, which was crazy. Oh, wow. You needed that. I needed it. And um, I remember my sweet mom, she... I was arrested, taken to jail, and I was taken to jail because I had warrants for bounce checks and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff like that. That's probably why they actually took me to jail, but I remember Carson was working at Texas Roadhouse, and they call. I had them call him, which I don't know why, and he came over there to the mall. I was at the mall, and like, please just let me take, just please let me take her home, and of course they, they wouldn't. And so I, I remember looking out the door and him there, and I just thought, man, this is so sad. And this was in October before I finally got clean in January. But so I, you would think that would have been like the rock bottom, that's it. But there was a little little yeah. more to go. So, um, you know, I found myself just in the beginning of my drug addiction, I would get my drugs from this girl who lived in a high-rise in Turtle Creek. Mm-hmm. And it was this fancy place and all that. By the end of it, I was over near Fair Park in just some terrible places. I remember being in one place and seeing like a little child, like a baby in a diaper, and and they were making it in the back. I mean, it just some horrible, horrible things. I mean, it just took me to the depths. But um, I had just been so sick. I mean, so incredibly ill. And um, my mom... I remember her saying like, you know, what is happening? And I was, and I had pneumonia so bad. I couldn't, I smoked meth is what I did. So I couldn't do it. So it's like for two weeks, I pretty much was so incredibly sick and I couldn't do it. And it's like, all of a sudden I started adding up like, wait a minute. 
I've gone two weeks without doing it. Strangely enough, this rock-bottom moment of being too sick to smoke meth was Casey's opportunity for salvation. Okay, you know, what do I need to do now? Like, two weeks when I thought I couldn't go one day, and now I'm two weeks in. And granted, I'd slept pretty much that entire two weeks. I was so incredibly ill. And um, I don't know, just that day I just said, I need help. I told my mom, I need help. I was living in an apartment, and it was just a disaster. I mean... They moved us out. We basically left. There's no telling what they charged us because we left just heaps of trash. And But they moved us out of that apartment, moved me into their home, and gave me some ultimatums and said, uh, you know, we're going to drug test you whenever we want to. If you test positive one time, you're you're gone. And we're keep we're keeping your child. Mm -hmm. You know, we will we will keep your child. And I remember Carson saying no, you know, I'm going, I will go with her. You know, I'm going with her. You know, he was very protective of me, even as at this point, I mean, I was eight years into this at this point. So he was, let's see, that means he was like 16, Mm -hmm. I guess, 15, 16. So he was protective until he realized that I was okay and that I was going to live. And I was trying to get my life back. And then he got really angry. Very, very, very angry, rightfully so. So that was a a pretty big challenge Mm -hmm. for us. Um, And a 15, mm 16-year-old boy is angry anyway. Anyway. And then then all of that. All of that on top of it. And so I think for Carson, you know, he was just so hurt. Mm. You know, just so hurt. And he has really bad memories of our home life and people in and out and people just showing up at all hours of the night and things he saw and heard that I thought we were, you know, keeping him from, you know, that just didn't happen. And so he was angry. He was really mad at me because then I, and at that point I'm trying to be a mom also. Right. And he's like, right. um, no. Right. You know, and I remember laying in the bed upstairs at my parents' house and just really sick and, and he was just like standing over me, just yelling and saying all kinds of horrible things. And he wished I would die and, you know, just all this stuff. And I remember my dad came up there and he was like, Carson, you can be angry and you have every right to be angry, but I cannot hear this anymore. I mean, we need, we need help, right. you know? And so we worked through that. It was very long and very drawn out years, years yeah. of getting through some of that stuff. And I think there's still some of it. I still hold tons of guilt. I mean, I've got thirteen, almost 13 years clean now, and I still have incredible guilt for Carson. Um, he just missed out on so much as a child. And I don't mean missed out on fun things. I'm just saying the normal right. life that a child should have, the one that I had. Yeah. You know, he didn't have that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he suffered. He's suffered since then. At, I feel like at my hand, who I should have been his, the one that is his protector. So that's been a real difficult thing. Casey's parents saw how much pain she was in and how much Carson was suffering, and it broke their hearts. They had compassion on their daughter and were eager to help. They just didn't know how, until a stranger came along and offered a real solution instead of a magic pill. You know, once I told my mom I wanted help, you know, we um, 
they pretty much sought counsel on how to do this and how to help me. And basically, I um, there was a guy that came to fix our computer, my parents' computer. And I don't know how it happened, but somehow they started talking about AA and NA and recovery. And so my parents sat me down and said, hey, we've talked to this guy. He was like this angel in their mind that yeah. came by. And told, so this is what you're going to do. You're going to start going that. And I, I wasn't, I mean, I was, I was actually more offended that they told someone my problems. You know, I was like, right. you don't even know him and you're telling my problems and, you know, all that kind of stuff and totally missing, right, right. missing the blessing that had happened that day. But what that did was it did get me into um, a program. Yeah. It got me into NA and my mom went with me and the first, gosh, months she went with me every time because at number one, they didn't trust me to drive myself. Right, right. <laughs> and um, so she would go and if it was an open, open meeting, she or my dad would go in, and if it was a closed meeting, they would wait outside. But they did that for months. And so January 22nd of 2008 is the last time I used drugs. Wow. Yeah. And um, it was a long road. Yeah. A very painful road of, of going through the steps. I, I firmly believe in NA and AA. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you can fully give yourself to that program, you will be successful. For me, um, my relationship with Christ was huge. My family's support. I mean, I had a lot of things that other people don't have and that I did have support. Um, My parents got some advice saying that I shouldn't, they shouldn't, um, that my job should be recovery meetings. Mm -hmm. That they shouldn't make me work for a little while. And they didn't. And my job was meetings. I went Mm -hmm. to many, sometimes many a day, I mean, I, I went to a lot of meetings. Um, I went to, I could go to church and I could go to meetings and that's it. I could have people over that they knew to their home. Um, and then they started letting me have my NA group over, mm-hmm. which was awesome. Yeah. And so they would come over, my mom would cook and my, they would, my mom and dad would sit at the table. And I remember them saying like, you know, I remember one time them saying, and everybody just looked so confused, but they were like, you know, what an honor it is for us to sit with a bunch of survivors here at this table you know, and thank you for coming. And I remember them just like, wow, that's crazy. You know, um, my parents, you know, were seemingly, they lived in a beautiful home and and they just welcomed those that were, you know, maybe not welcome other places. They were welcome there. And they were pretty amazing. And so they provided a lot of support to even my group, my NA group. And um, so I just worked the program. I worked the program and I went to counseling and Carson went to counseling and we pushed, we pushed through a lot. Carson continued to struggle so much and it was hard. He just never could find his place in the world and it was hard. It was difficult, a very difficult uh, thing. I divorced my husband. We divorced and, um, you know, I started going back to church. I joined a Sunday school class of women that were all older than me. So it was really kind of neat. You know, I felt really loved and they didn't really know about what was going on. And I remember when I finally was ready to tell them, I had them come over because I was, I was going to that class even when I was using that same class, I was still going because I was trying to kind of put up a front. And so when I had them over and just shared everything, you know, they were just kind of blown away, but at the same time, super supportive and just very, 
you know, ready to do step in and be, you know, and love and support. And it was, it was a, God had me with those women older than me, Mm -hmm. um, for a reason, you know, they were able to really just wrap their arms around me and they just refused to, to give up, you know, so much grace, lots, lots of grace all over you. Once Casey finally began making progress toward freedom with the help of her parents, her recovery groups, and her dear friends, she realized how much this lie had stolen from her. She resolved to call this lie out and walk in truth instead. Lots of grace. And and I think I didn't really appreciate it back then. Wow. <laughs> Looking back, I really appreciate it. I, mean, I, I remember being thankful, but I just don't remember... I just don't remember really realizing that it was grace, maybe. Like, I didn't really realize right, it was right. grace. Um, because I had lied to them. I mean, you know, I, I there, wasn't a, there wasn't a person in my life that I had been truthful with wow. about anything. Not even yourself. Yeah, not even myself. Because I believed everything I was telling everybody else, you wow. know. And so, I, I believe that. Grace was there for me, and I knew that, but it was a difficult road trying to get to the point where I was willing to accept the grace that was already offered, already given, especially from from Jesus. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, he just was waiting for me to say, I need you, yeah. you know, and I accept, you know, waiting for me to ask for forgiveness and, and, and have that um, grace poured over me and me yeah. accept the grace. Right. And I think that's where I, I, I struggled so long. It was just, it's still that very, that nagging, like you're not worth mm. the grace. You're not worth praying to Jesus. He doesn't want to hear you. you've betrayed him. You've hurt him. You've, you know, all the things. I mean, that was just Satan just filling my head. Mm. And so the, but going through the 12 steps is yeah. pretty liberating. You know, if you can truly Go through them. And so that that um, allowed me to just put away some of that mm-hmm. and go through the the um, uh, the ninth step, you know, mm-hmm. going and asking for um, making amends mm. was uh, kind of crazy. Wow. But it was healing, very, very healing. It was tough. Okay, so what are the 12 steps for people who don't know? So the 12 steps of recovery. Okay. So it's a it's a program through AA and NA, and it is literally 12 steps. It's about, I mean, it goes through a gamut of things, but it's basically the first is, you know, admitting you have a problem. It starts with that. Okay. I mean, if you, if you can't get to the point where you admit you have a problem and your life is unmanageable, then... <laughs> Then you can't do anything else. So it goes from that. It goes from doing a moral inventory of yourself, like looking back and seeing where your defects of character lie. You know, where what has happened. Because alcohol and drug abuse and any abuse or any any, um, addiction is usually not the root problem. Right. I mean, there's something under there. That's the surface problem. But the root problem, there's something that got you to that point. Very rarely is it just like, hey, I was just trying to have a good time and then all of a sudden I'm addicted. Usually there's something that you're either escaping, running from, blocking out, numbing out. There's something that drives it, especially further into your addiction. Because when you see things falling apart, a normal person would say, um, stop. Right. Okay. That's it. 
But if you have an addiction and you've got things that's fueling that addiction, it's very difficult to stop. My husband now has no experience with addiction. And he's like, he's a pastor. And he's like, when people come to me with addiction, I'm like, it's killing you. Quit doing it. Right. Like, just don't do it again. Right. And I'm like, babe, (laughs) (laughs) if it were only that easy. Right. But going through the 12 steps, doing the moral inventory, finding out where those defects of character are, going back, making a list of people you have harmed. I mean, that's that's, humbling. That is. Then going to them, making amends, and then putting it in practice, carrying the message. It was a lot of hard work to make sure that truth was dominating Casey's life and not the lie that had led her to addiction. But she had seen the damage with clear eyes now, and she was never going back. She began to build a new life. It wasn't easy, but it was beautiful in its own and unexpected ways. And so that's kind of what, to me, has kept me over the years still clean is that I began after all that to sponsor other people. And so that, you know, accountable, you know, if you're sponsoring, then you're, you're accountable to people and their, their sobriety or their remaining clean is somewhat during those steps is dependent on you remaining clean. And so I began to sponsor people almost immediately, Mm -hmm. not immediately, but almost immediately once finishing the steps. Right, right. And getting some time under my belt. And that was probably, I think I sponsored my first person maybe like a year and a half into into being clean. And, you know, that's just something that it was a way of life for me. Mm-hmm. And even now, you know, all these years later, I, I pop into meetings. I go to meetings from time to time. I don't sponsor any anybody right now. Um, but I'm a pastor's wife. So I have a lot of accountability yes. in my life now. So that's... That's, I'll tell that story as well. But, you know, it's just kind of like, I just, I don't know. I, I can't, I, it's hard for me to see how people make it without some kind of structured program, whether it be a rehab. For me, it has to be Christ-centered. AA and NA, to me, are Christ-centered. They talk about a higher power. Well, that higher power is God to me. Um, and so without something like that, I don't, I I have a hard time seeing how people can do it without that. Um, I'm not saying that it can't be done, but in my experience and, and for me, you know, my addiction was meth, but you know, once I became clean from meth since that January of 08, I don't, I've never drank, I don't drink Mm -hmm. anything. And the reason for that for me is because I have been in those rooms for so many years and I've seen people who alcohol was never their issue. So they think, well, I can mm-hmm. have an occasional drink and nine times out of 10, they go right back to what they really want. Yeah. And that's how I have to tell myself, like, Casey, yeah. if you drink, you will go back to using. Right. And do I think that, I mean, I kind of still do think that. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of me thinks... Well, you're so far down. It's probably not a big deal, but do you want to risk it? Right. And that answer is a hard no. Right. I do not want to risk it. And I won't. And there has been times in my, I've been challenged in my um, clean living life that I have wished very much that I could numb things out. Yeah. That I could escape. 
Um, I've had some difficult things in my life happen since then. Casey had to choose to live differently without any escape routes. But this meant that she could share the same kind of unconditional love that she had received from others for so many years. You can't fully love someone unless you allow yourself to hurt with them. That's what Casey's parents had learned. And now Casey was about to learn that with her own son. One that was really tough for me um, back in 2014, I believe, or 15, 14 or 15, um, Carson told me that he was gay. And I, I was devastated at first. I mean, very, very devastated. I just, I felt responsible. Like I caused mm-hmm. it because of not having a father in his life. Um, you know, those kinds of things. Like I, I, you know, even though my dad was very involved and he and, he and Carson were very close, I was like, man, I miss, I mean, all the things I was, I wasn't paying attention to him. Mm. And he, I mean, I was fine with him at 14 years old. Just let him, let me know where you are because I, that would let, let me be in there, use drugs and not be interrupted and not have to feel guilty about what he's doing. If he's out having fun, doing whatever. I didn't even ask, check, didn't know the parents, didn't know the kids. I mean, I just let him do whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, so I blamed myself a lot for that. And, um, as a Christian, it was, it was hard for me to reconcile that in my head. And I mean, I had a really tough time with it, but God just, I mean, we just had some serious conversations and he just told me, I mean, I remember like Jesus said, love period. That's your child. That's my child. You love, love that child. And we had a talk in the beginning about what I thought, what he thought, biblically, born with it, choice. We did the whole gamut of all those talks. And and that's it. We don't talk about that anymore. Mm-hmm. I love him. I show him grace and love and how Christ loves him. And if I were to turn my back on him, since I am his probably strongest connection to Christ is through me. I do know Carson was a Christian. He became a Christian at nine years old, but I'm a, I'm his Christian figure in his life. So I turn my back on him. I mean, that's just not going to happen. Um, do I wish for a different life for him? Sometimes I do. Mm-hmm. The life that he lives is a difficult one. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there, it's a, it's, it, it can be a painful life. I mean, there's still a lot of, a lot of prejudice. There's still a lot of things that go in that direction. I worry for his safety a lot of times, but, um, but I love him and that my love has not changed, mm-hmm. nor has anyone else's love for him changed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my parents, um, uh, my mom, you know, Carson, told my mom before she died. Um, and I think that was good for him. You know, she knew about a year or so before she died that he, that he was gay. And, um, I think it would have been harder for him had she passed and him never had told her cause they were very, very close also. So, you know, that was a time where there was a time I thought, man, I wish, I wish I could numb some of this out, but it wasn't an option right. for me. 
and um, Carson needed me to be be his mom and love him unconditionally like I had been loved unconditionally. Mm. And, you know, as Christians and not really as Christians, I like to say as religious people, people like to say, well, this sin is worse and that sin is worse. And, you know, oh, if you do this, then we're going to, we're you know, we're leaving the church over that. You know, right. we are, if you, you know, right. if you as a pastor's wife support that, we're out. Right. And to that, I say, bye. <laughs> right. I mean, because right. I guess the way I look at that is I, we all have sin in our lives. And yes, as a, as a human people on earth, we do have, we do look at murder different than right. lying. Right. But in God's eyes. Right. It's all the same. Right. And so why am I going to look at what people consider him as to be like, well, that is unforgivable. I mean, that's why That's why so many in that community have got their walls up against anything church. Right. Because they've been judged, cast out, talked about. You know, I mean, so right. much of that. And so and it, and it goes for all it goes for all sin. You know, I mean, we are we're we're supposed to be a church that loves the person, you know, and we we just can't sit in judgment. I mean, I look at my life, the things that I don't even speak about that I did to get my hands on drugs mm-hmm. is nothing worse than anybody else around here and their sin. There's some sin that's very public, there's some sin that's extremely private. Right. But it's all it's all sin, right. you know. And so I just I just have felt a real, you know, like I don't know, just an affinity toward that community. Mm-hmm. Just that they know that Christ loves them, yeah. and that they that though man and maybe organized church has kicked them out, mm-hmm. that that's not Christ. Right. And I just I mean I'm just not going to um, I'm I'm not going to ever accept that 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 the way some churches have done yeah. is right in any, in any way, you know, we went, my, um, dad and a bunch of friends, we went to the pride parade two or three years ago and did the free mom hugs, free yes. dad hugs. We did that. And it was absolutely beautiful. Mm. Um, it was, it was very, sad in a lot of ways because there were so many people there that had never, you know, hadn't been hugged by their mom in 10 years or their dad in 10 years because they found that they were gay and they're like, you're out of our family or they've been kicked out of church. They couldn't believe that we would pray with them and that we would pray over them because the people they knew would have never had anything to do with them like that. But we should, we were, we, that day, we were the hands and feet of Christ that day. And I remember just down from us, there was a guy on a bullhorn saying how God hates you. And, you know, and I was thinking, shut up. Like you are ruining it for us. You are a Pharisee and a religious person. We are Christian and we're showing Christ's love. We are very different. And we, we did that for on a hot August day and concrete down in Oakland. We gave sweaty hugs all day long. <laughs> You know, and I miss that. We can't even hug anymore, no, and I miss that. No. <laughs> but but that meant so much to Carson, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, there my dad was, you know, in his free dad hugs, his cowboy hat, you know, down there as a 75-year-old man. Wow. 
I'm like, yes, this, and so many of Carson's friends were like, man, like, I can't believe you did this. Like my, my family would never do this. And it wasn't that we're down there saying that we're celebrating or saying like, yes, this is, this is right or wrong. We weren't making statements like that. It wasn't about going down there with any kind of agenda. Right. If we had an agenda, it was love. Right. And it was letting people know that they are loved and they're worth it. And though they feel cast out, they're not. And especially not by us or Christ. Yeah. So it was pretty, pretty special. A pretty special time. If my mom would have been alive, she would have been all over that. Oh. Yeah. That's Over the course of time, Casey's mom passed away, but not before Casey had a chance to reconcile and spend several years giving back that unconditional love. She would have been all over that. You know, she she was um, diagnosed with cancer in 2010, and um, she it was a slow-growing cancer. It was neuroendocrine carcinoma. It was very slow-growing. It started in her small bowel and spread to her liver. By the time they found it, it was in her liver and lymph nodes. It was pretty much everywhere. But one positive thing is it didn't, it didn't respond to chemo. So she never took chemo, which in one sense is good because chemo is so hard. On the other sense, there's no cure. So she lived six years, six and a half years. And it was some of the best, best years. She, um, I was two years clean when she was diagnosed with cancer. And I was so grateful to God for that. Because I could, I wasn't running. I was present. I was with her. I could be with her through anything and everything. And I was able to be strength for her. Mm. And I had zapped her strength for so many years. Mm. You know, I had just taken everything from her and she still stood with me. And, you know, I was able to do that. And I was so grateful. Like, God, you knew, you knew that your timing was perfect. Mm. And that I would be, and, and for her, that I could be okay and that she wasn't going to die wondering where I was mm-hmm. you know and it was it was very special it was a very special time and she was diagnosed in 2010 I met Greg and we were married in 11 oh, and wow. so it was really that was special yes. um, to have him in that journey with me and I think God gave him to me to not have that journey alone Wow, you know yes. with my mom we were just very very close yeah, she was a wonderful woman. Yeah, she, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. Very got wonderful. great parents. Yes. So looking back, what would you tell your young self? I think a lot of it stems from, you know, your you are a creation of Christ. Like, what's not to love? Mm. You know what what is not to love? And I I didn't grow up in a family that made me feel bad about myself or was putting pressure on me for anything. I grew up in a great family. So where I, where I let that come in, I'm not really sure. Um, I didn't have an experience growing up. I mean, I was always a little bit, maybe a little heavier, but I was also an athlete, you know, I played softball all the time. So, I mean, I don't looking and I look back at pictures of myself in high school. I'm like, what was I, why was I so worried about how I looked? Like I was, Fine, you know, and so I don't really know where all that came in, but, um, you know, maybe just more of believing in what God has created you to be and not being so hard on yourself. And I, and, and I see now this world is even harder on kids and 
I think, man, how are they making it through? You know, I had the best setup and I still blew it. You know, I still blew it. <laughs> and I had such good role models and strong believers. And, you know, my mom was just uh, a warrior for Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, she just, she was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she, the last, I guess, three weeks of her life, I just stayed up there in Dallas or in Mesquite. And, uh, I just stayed there and just helped and watched her. And, you know, she just was just beautiful till her last breath. And, you know, people were coming in round just one after the other wanting to see her. And, you know, she would be asking them how she could pray for them. And I mean, just, I'm talking like it's unheard of. I mean, it just is. And she, you know, we, her, her memorial service we had like 1,100 people there, and it was just wow. so. It was so humbling as her daughter to hear what people say were saying about her. I knew those things, mm-hmm. but I was like, it wasn't just me. It was like everybody. And someone posted on Facebook like the next day. They said that they were at Judy Rawls Memorial with 1,100 of her best friends, oh. and that's really what it was. Oh. She was wonderful. They were married 53, almost. 53 years and, um, 52 and a half years and just a great, a great time. And even my dad in the memorial service said that the last three weeks of her life were the sweetest of their entire marriage because it was, we knew it was coming and she was so ready to go and everything was raw and real and Mm. nothing left unsaid. I mean, absolutely nothing left unsaid and people, that is such a gift. Yeah. Um, that doesn't happen right. a lot. I mean, people are either taken tragically, quickly, mm-hmm. or they don't get that time. And we yeah. just, we just wallered in it. Wow. I mean, we really did. And it was, it was really special. It was very special. Yeah. Well, I love your story. It's beautiful. Thank you. It's absolutely beautiful. It's funny now. I look back and I'm like, wow, okay, I need to write a book. Like, meth addict to preacher's wife. Like, well, how did you get there? Like, something about a God's sense of humor or something like that. It's, you know, marrying Greg and, I mean, being a pastor's wife and and, a, and he's a pastor of a cowboy church. So, not only am I not a cowgirl, but I'm also a meth addict. And now I'm a pastor's wife and it's just... It works perfect. I don't know. It just it just works. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want to add? Um, trying to think if there's anything else. I don't think so. I think I've pretty much covered it all. I guess. I guess the one thing I will add. This is something that's important to me. Um. All the way back when I was pre- found out I was pregnant with Carson, my mom said this one thing to me. She said, um, don't let your suffering go to waste. Oh. She said, don't let what you're going through right now, what you will go through, just fall on deaf ears. You use that to give people hope that even in the deepest and darkest suffering, that there is hope in Christ. And I've never forgotten that. And I've, that's been several, in several periods of my life, I've repeated that to myself. And I even now in talking to people that are going through really difficult times, I mean, if you can see that 
that there is hope, that what they're going through right now doesn't have to be that define them. It doesn't have to be the end. Absolutely. And that, you know, I think, I think that's what we need in our world today is hope for something better. And for me, with all the craziness going on in the world and the unrest and division, I'm like, but my hope isn't in this world. My hope's in Christ. And how blessed am I that my hope is in Christ? Yeah. Um, and I can put this world aside. Mm. And mom, just, yeah. Your mom is smart. <laughs> she is a smart, smart lady. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a very good word. Yeah. I love that. Believing a lie is so much easier than believing the truth, isn't it? Casey looks back on her life and sees how a tiny seed of deception was planted in her heart in high school and how hard she had to work to cut it back once it had grown out of control. She wouldn't have been able to do it without the unconditional love shown to her by her parents, her recovery group, her friends, and Jesus Christ. Her story is beautiful, and it's nothing short of supernatural. God's timing is truly perfect. Thank you for joining us today on Kava the Podcast. We pray that this story has given you hope because that's why we do what we do. Please be sure to join us next time on Kava the Podcast. Thanks again for listening to Kava the Podcast. It's our joy to share these stories of hope in a confusing world. To keep up with our guests and adventures and podcasting, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We would also love it if you gave us a review on whatever podcasting platform you use. It helps us continue to share hope around the world. We are so grateful for our listeners who financially support Kava the Podcast. If you would like to become a supporter, please consider donating via Patreon or contacting us about sponsorship opportunities. You can find more information at kavahpodcast.com. That's Q-A-V-A-H podcast.com. I would like to thank my head writer, Rebecca Gray, and audio engineer, Meredith Douglas. I could not do this without you. You make this happen, and I can't express my gratitude. Maybe you've been listening because you found yourself in a desperate place. We want you to know that all is not lost. It is our desire that you would be able to borrow hope from those who've gone before you, those who've waited to find a positive outcome. Please be sure and connect with us via our website or social media. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.